So we're now at the end of our Walking in the Dust series, and I hope that you, like me, are longing to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, like those first disciples who were recognized as being those who must have been with Jesus. True, authentic Christians, just like the one they've been following. Now the word Christian means, uh, Christian means little Christs. It was first used in Antioch, not long after Jesus had ascended and the church was born and it was beginning to flourish in the earth. People dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution and they ended up in Antioch. And in Antioch there was this, this kind of little revival that broke out. Uh, and the people of Antioch didn't know how to describe these new people, these followers of the way of Jesus. And so they called them Christians, those who were like Christ. When we look like Jesus, it's because we've learned to work at his elbow and we've understood his ways and we've become like him. That's what Jesus, our rabbi, believes that we can do as authentic disciples of Jesus. He has faith in us. So today we're wrapping up the series. And so I've called this one uh, the first and last lesson of our rabbi. I want to finish the series by looking at, at one of the major lessons, that, that one of the final lessons that he taught his disciples. It's arguably uh, not the very last because there's an awful lot of lessons he taught them in the Last Supper narratives where he taught them about washing feet and he taught them about what it was to, to truly serve people and what leadership was supposed to look like and all of that sort of thing. But on, there's a whole last phase of ministry before we get to Jerusalem and before that whole kind of Passover time, there is this route from Galilee to Jerusalem, which is full of activity. And it's full of Jesus' ministry. But before Jesus embarks on this last phase, he sends his disciples on an incredible experience. <coughs> this experience is perhaps the single most important piece of equipping that he could give them before leaving them to their own devices. What he gets them to do will enable them to continue his ministry and will set the tone for the church to fulfill her ministry to reach all the nations of the earth. This experience is going to stretch his disciples to the max and it's going to teach them how to discern what God is doing around them. It's going to teach them how the power of God can be manifested and how to see whole areas touched and transformed by the love of God. What kind of lesson is this? What did Jesus ask them to do that would make, equip them like that? Well, you're going to have to wait. I'm not going to tell you yet. Because first I want to look at one of Jesus' first lessons. One of the... One of the things that Jesus had to learn first before he could teach anybody anything. Let's begin with some good Christmas theology. God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and their divine plan to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. God, in his love, agreed that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, celebrated and glorified in heaven, would be sent to earth to immerse himself in human life. 
and to be born to a teenage virgin girl called Mary. God in the flesh. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. The heaven-born Prince of Peace, the Son of Righteousness. We sing some great theology at Christmas. <clears throat> Before Mary conceived Jesus, the Son of Heaven foresaw what we now understand as the life of Christ. But I've just got this theological question. How much did Jesus see before he was born to Mary? Given that Jesus is eternal, if he lives outside of time, if as part of the Godhead he has foreknowledge, how much did Jesus see about what his life would be like before the Incarnation? That's a bit of a big question, isn't it? Did he know about the stable? <coughs> did he choose that? Did he know about the murderous intentions of Herod and that they would have to flee in the night? Did he know all about that? Did he know about the long journey to Egypt and their need to live in exile for a number of years? Did he know that life would be simple and hard in Nazareth and that his family would have to make a living by hard work and to live very simply. Was that something Jesus chose? Did he know Mary before becoming her son? Did he choose his mom? <laughs> they say that you can choose your friends but you can't choose your family. Is that true of Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> Did he know her quirks? Did he know her, her personality? How, could he foresee? How much? Interesting thoughts. The angel Gabriel said to Mary that she was highly favoured and chosen amongst women. <coughs> was she highly favoured to Jesus before the angel came? Christmas theology. It's mind-blowing. He certainly knew before he was born that the culture he was about to step into would be often aggressive towards who he was and the message that he would need to carry. He certainly foresaw the crown of thorns and the agonising execution, the isolation and the shame. And knowing all that, he still said, that's where I want to be and I'm willing to go that some may be saved. That's amazing. To see all that and still come. To leave that place where you are the celebrated, beloved one of heaven and still to come. But whatever he knew before the incarnation, everything was set to zero the moment Jesus entered humanity. When Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph, he had to learn everything from scratch. Everything that he perceived before the divine conception now had to be relearnt, reperceived as a human being with the identity of God. Jesus had to learn to understand the Father's heart and to perceive what his Father was doing. But now, as a simple, ordinary human like you and me, 
He had to discover God's purposes and plans and seek to fulfill his God-given destiny for his life, just like we do. He wasn't a superhero growing up. He was vulnerable. He was not terribly wealthy. And the family was very dependent on others. But here's the thing. Jesus' experience growing up wasn't a hindrance to his heavenly calling. It taught him that you could understand best what the Father was doing and how the Holy Spirit was at work from this position of dependence upon others and from a position of very little control. He chose that position. Jesus chose that position of vulnerability. He modelled what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, God's power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. I've got some friends of mine who I trained with at Spurgeon's. Uh, remarkable people. Uh, I believe Richard all knows them. Uh, Dan and Annie Dupree. They were, I think Richard met, went out to meet them in Tunisia, is that right? When, when uh, Dan and Annie went out to Tunisia with BMS, they went out to be missionaries in a backwater town in Tunisia on the edge of the desert. And uh, when they first went out there, they were so excited. They had trained, Dan had, had done his MA in um, social work, Annie was a, a physiotherapist, uh, and they had trained through BMS to become missionaries, to be able to communicate the gospel in powerful ways. They went with strategies, they went with some funding behind them, and they took their three children, um, Isaac, Amaya, and Karis with them, and they, they were so excited. They sold their house, they packed up all their stuff into a few suitcases, and they jumped on a plane for Tunisia, and they got to the airport, they, they had a, a taxi, there was a, a car waiting for them who knew where they were to live, who had keys that, uh, to their house that had been organised for them, so they jumped into this car, they, were, they went all the way to this town where they were to be based, and then the car dropped them off at the end of this little driveway, uh, and they waved goodbye to the car, said thank you so much, there's the keys, and they walked towards their house, only to find that their house only had half a roof. And there was no furniture, there was nothing there, it was like a derelict shell. Something had gone a bit wrong in the planning. So there they were, just desperate, in this place where they didn't know anyone, they could only speak a little bit of the language, they didn't know where to go, they didn't know where to, to find anything or to find any help, and they just had this house that was pretty much uninhabitable, uh, and nowhere to sleep, nothing. So they didn't know what to do. And so they walked into the town and they found somewhere where they could sit at a table and have a drink. Uh, and they did and they sat down kind of reeling and afraid and not quite sure, a little bit angry, uh, but feeling like this was not the plan. And so the cafe owner came up to them and just struck up a conversation and could see they were a little bit distressed. and. Uh, Dan, in his broken Arabic, uh, shared some of something of what had just happened. And the man just pulled up a chair and sit, and he listened. Uh, and then he called his brother over, 
and they sit and they listen to what was happening and in the end he said let's go and have a look so the the family walked all the way back down the road to this place and they walked and they, they looked at it and the man was like shouldn't have happened couldn't believe it uh, got on his mobile phone called some people and he said it's okay you can stay tonight with my brother and so this car came to pick them up this family not knowing anybody there not knowing if they should trust these people or not had to get in this car go to another part of the town and the this man opened his home and gave them their own beds and said, you can stay here uh, until we work out what to do next. The next morning, Dan said, oh, I better go in and get a feel for the extent of the damage. So Dan uh, got a car, drove to his house and was there. He was just walking around it, feeling completely bewildered, praying, saying, God, this isn't supposed to be what it, what it was supposed to look like. And just as he was praying around, this pickup truck drove in with a load of timber and supplies to rebuild the roof. Uh, and Dan was just overwhelmed. These, these couple of guys jumped out, put up ladders, started building. He, he worked alongside them. And within a week, the house was habitable. They'd, found, they'd, been, they'd had furniture donated. They'd had all sorts of stuff donated. This whole community just rallied around them to get them going. And they served Dan and Annie. And that's how they began their work in Tunisia. <coughs> and I remember Dan saying to me, we, he said, we felt like we went there with all the answers. We felt like we went there with the finance. We felt like we went there with, with an enlightened perspective on the world. We went there in the position of power, if you like, thinking that we were going to bring the transformation. But actually, when we got there, what we realized is that we were the ones that needed transforming. And they had to be helped before they could help anybody. And after a few weeks of, of trauma and stress and anger and wondering what on earth happened there and why were we put in this position, they suddenly saw God's hand at work. And they had got to know people in that community like they would never have been able to had they had it all sorted out and came in that position of power. The vulnerability opened the way to true relationship. After working there for a number of years, they, they came back to the UK. They felt, for a number of reasons, they, they had to come back. Um, and I think they, Dan said they'd only baptised two or three people uh, and had influenced a number of others. They weren't quite sure how successful on mission terms that time was. But they had a deep sense that something in them had changed and something in their, their near community around them had changed as well. <coughs> And now they're working in Albania. And these are the same couple that I want to talk to you about next week to do with, that are now working with refugees in a very different way to what they set out to do in Tunisia. Dan and Annie had to humble themselves and learn to receive help and hospitality. Jesus never experienced a culture shock like that. Right from his birth, he had to be reliant upon the goodwill of others. They needed the innkeeper, not just to slam the door and say there's no room, move on, but to have enough compassion to say, everywhere's full, I do have a stable, it's quite clean. They needed the generosity of the innkeeper. They needed the wise men, they really did. They needed these people that were faithful to travel from the other side of the world with gold because they would need hard cash when they were on the road. They needed to be able to pay for stuff. 
moving to Egypt, setting up in Egypt to, for Joseph to buy tools to ply his trade to be able to feed the family, to be able to set up with a little place and to survive. They needed that gold that the wise men brought. And who knows how much other help and goodwill they needed along the way. It's a long way from, Beth, from Bethlehem to Egypt and then back up to Nazareth. They would have needed goodwill. They would have often had to make do with less than adequate circumstances. And they would have often had to face hostility. They would have learned to soldier on and make do. And they would have learned a lot about generosity and kindness as a family en route. Eventually, Jesus was able to set up with a problem in Nazareth, in a place that the community would have been very, very strong, very local, very interconnected. They would have had to learn to do life, uh, small village style. Rural villages in Israel in the first century would have shared many things, resources, tools, expertise. Remember on uh, family night, Diana talked about how people used to bring in the harvest as families. Remember that? Working multi-generationally to bring in the harvest. Well, they would have done that. But they would have also built one another's houses, they would have celebrated one another's marriages, and they would have mourned one another's deaths. Jesus would have understood the aspirations of his community as well as what hurt them and caused them suffering. He was intimately acquainted with their stories and how they perceived themselves and their futures and their place in the wider world. So this is what I want you to get before I teach anything else. Only then, after years of growing up in these dynamics, did Jesus understand his father's heart and know exactly what he had to do to partner with the Holy Spirit in that context and to communicate powerfully all the different perspective of the kingdom of God to those specific people. Only after years of growing up and being immersed in that culture did Jesus know how to communicate the kingdom. Now, hold those thoughts in your mind because this is the walking in the dust bit, learning to live like Rabbi Jesus. So as Jesus comes to the end of his ministry, as Jesus knows that the cross is approaching and he's about to make his final journey to Jerusalem, Jesus sets his disciples up to go ahead of him to all the towns and the villages along the way where Jesus was going to pass through on the way to Jerusalem. And I believe that the purpose of this was twofold. One, I think Jesus wanted to absolutely maximise his impact and to make sure every single stop counted on the way to Jerusalem. And so he sent his disciples ahead of him to prepare the way so that he could do exactly what he needed to do when he arrived. That's the first thing. The second thing, I believe that Jesus wanted to equip his disciples to be able to do the work that he was doing. This was his final opportunity to send them out on an errand that was going to grow them powerfully. So turn to Luke and chapter 10. Just to set the scene for you, 
he gathered 72 disciples. Some translations say 70, some say 72, but around about 72 disciples for a very short but very specific briefing. And then he sent them out in twos to every place that he was about to go on his final journey to Jerusalem. Let's read it from Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. Now the Lord chose 72 disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places that he planned to visit. And these were his instructions to them. He said, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go. And remember that I am sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. Do you like the idea of that? Don't take any money with you, nor a traveller's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be upon this house. If those who are there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality, because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them, the kingdom of heaven is near you now. Well, amazing instructions. First thing I want to pull out of this is the whole take nothing for the journey bit. (coughs) Vulnerability and a reliance upon the community to which you are sent. It seems so counterintuitive. This wasn't difficult for Jesus. It's all he'd known since he was a baby, that God would provide and that people would come forward to help. But the disciples had to learn this. The disciples had to get comfortable with this way to live. Our natural tendency is to wait until we think we know what God is up to, and to wait until we have all the necessary resources, and to wait until we have all the necessary skills and strategies, and then go and seek to share Jesus. But that way... As I've already said, you arrive with all the answers, all the resources, you have the power and control, you're holding all the cards, and you're ready to educate the poor, ignorant people. That's not how Jesus operated. He didn't work that way. He said, no, take nothing with you. Nothing but the peace of God and a desire to share people's lives and homes. Jesus always sought to come in a position of service and vulnerability. That way, when you enter a new place, you will instinctively find the people of peace and generosity. The ones who will open their homes to you and give you the opportunity to share as equals and friends. They are the people in any given community who others listen to and rely upon. So naturally, others will listen to you as you speak alongside the respected people in that community. 
it's so important that we learn to listen and we learn to share and we learn to respect and we learn to honour before we teach. It's so important that before we come to share the power of the kingdom, that we understand where that power has to be applied. And what, that, what the people that we're living amongst are really feeling and really understanding. And to love them as people. Before we seek to even to, to share deeply what we're about. Love paves the way for everything. It's how God loves to meet people. God loves to meet people as equals. He loves to meet people as a servant. He's a servant king. And he loves to really get to know people well and then share the good news as it is in Jesus. That's how God loves to work. Secondly, Jesus says in verse 7 and 8, don't move around from house to house, but eat whatever is set before you. In other words, commit yourselves to the people that God has placed before you and live as they live. Eat as they eat. Share life as they experience it. Why? Because if you're willing to do this, then just like Jesus, your eyes will be opened and you'll perceive what God is already doing and desires to do amongst those people. Faith will rise within you. And you'll be able to say with integrity and affection, the kingdom of God is close by. And right there, from that place of vulnerability and shared life, Jesus says, I want you to release the power of God to heal the sick and to tell them about the good news that transforms. It's from that position of shared life that our eyes can be opened to see what God is already doing. Jesus knew that was the best possible context to be able to understand what the Father was up to and to be able to release the power of the kingdom. We don't just stop with friendship. We don't just stop with getting to know a community and understanding them well. We have too much of the goodness of God in our lives not to share it. We have to be generous sharers. When you see what makes people tick, the, the, the most natural thing for us should, to be, should be to share Jesus with that person and to share the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, I want you to do that with power. I want you to do that by meeting people's needs with heaven's resources. Be quick to pray for healing. Be quick to say the kingdom of heaven is close by, it's at hand. God is here now, he wants to do things. As your eyes are open to what God wants to do, don't hesitate. But you've already built a rapport with the people. You've already become friends. Share the goodness that you have and don't keep it to yourselves. Be quick to do so. That is incarnational life and ministry. For those of you who know your Bibles well, there's a great precedent for this in the Old Testament. Do you remember Elijah in the drought? When he was uh, hiding near the brook of Cherith, and the, the ravens came to feed him with bread and he was drinking from the brook and then the brook dried up. What did he do? He had to go and find somewhere else to be. And so God sent him to Zarephath. And what happened when he got to Zarephath? He saw, he met a, a, a widow. 
and her son, and they were preparing their last meal before they died because it was so bad. What did, you, what did Elijah say? He said, would you please prepare something for me first and then prepare for, your, for yourself and your son. He relied upon their hospitality. Elijah needed the widow of Zarephath. And as she began to share her story and her life and the little bit she had, the power of God came and the oil and the flour never ran out. But the prophet had to be vulnerable first and had to share in her life first. And in that context, God began to move. I love that. So coming back to Luke 10. If these 72 disciples can learn to follow these simple instructions and to trust God for what happens, if they can truly listen to people and share the good news from a place of solidarity with their community, they would become more like Jesus than ever before. And finally ready to move with the good news from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. I want to finish with just a final story. <coughs> there was a church, a little bit like this one, rural England, who decided that they were going to do something similar to us. They decided they wanted to reach some of the villages surrounding their town. So they set up these communities, a bit like we're proposing to do with our mission communities. And one of these groups went to a riverside village. And in this riverside village, there was standard sort of setup. There was a parish church, there was a post office, there was a pub. Uh, good British village. Um, and uh, they had their normal rhythms, they had their harvest festivals, they had their summer fete. Uh, they had a, a little carnival that would go through there in the summertime. Uh, there was also a little school, uh, and it was just a normal English rural village. And they started with a team of 16. So they were going to meet in somebody's home who lived in the village, uh, and they were going to begin just to ask God, what do you want us to do here? What are you doing in this place? So they began with prayer walking. They began with uh, just seeking to open their eyes as to what God was doing. Um, and to just form as a group, just to become a group that was gelled together, that had learned how to talk, how to share life, how to pray, how to be a cohesive group. So they started kind of small and cautious, a little bit nervous. They took the time to talk with the local vicar, who incidentally had nine churches to look after. And through long, careful conversations, they began to build a rapport with the vicar. At first, he was very, very cynical. And he thought, goodness, what are you trying to do? We've already got a church here. Our church is already struggling to get people through the doors. So what are you doing setting up a, a rival group on my doorstep? But as they began to share hearts, as they began to pray, the vicar started to see this group as an answer to his prayers because he'd been praying for reinforcements and new ways to reach out to the village. And he started to sense that maybe this is the answer to his prayers. They won the vicar over because that summer, when the fate came around, which was always a bit of uh, a stressful situation because there was never enough people to run all the things that were going on, they decided to serve the local church and they became like the task force of the local fate. 
and they, were, they worked really hard alongside this church. They didn't even advertise what they were doing, they just served the church. And the vicar loved it. There was new energy, there was new, a new, new sense of renewed growth and life about the church, and more people became interested in the work of the parish church because they had served it and then withdrawn. Well, it wasn't easy to start with. First few weeks, they had a flurry of new people because some people had heard that there was a new group meeting in the village, and they went from 16 to 24, but a number of those first people just dropped away after a few weeks. But they were certainly big enough to be uncomfortable in the living room now. And they, so they decided to pray, Lord, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to move to a new venue? Or do you want us to do something else? What do we need to do? And they felt that God wanted them to move to a new venue, a bigger venue where they could expand as a group and welcome more people into this group. So they prayed about it. And they took this passage really seriously. They said, we're not going to pay for anywhere. We're not going to rent anywhere. We're going to ask around. We're going to rely on the hospitality of this village because we need bigger space and there are bigger spaces here so we're going to ask around. So they asked the, the local landlord of the pub, can we use your room upstairs, your function room? And he said no. Thought they were probably a bit of a cult. So he told them he, there's no way they were going in there. Uh, they asked the people down at the boathouse if they could use the boathouse. Uh, and they said, no, well, you can, but it's going to be £100 a night. And they thought, nope, we said we weren't going to pay for this. And they asked the local cafe as well. Again, they said, you can use it, but it will cost you. And they said, no, we, we can't do that. They asked the vicar, and the vicar said, yeah, sure, but when they looked at the church hall, it was so cold, they thought, no, we're not going in there. <laughs> so... They were back to square one, they were meeting in this home, they were praying about it, saying, God, would you just open somewhere for us to meet? This is getting uh, really uncomfortable when we meet together. A couple of weeks later, one of the members of the group heard that the lady that owned the post office was really going through it. And she thought, I know that lady. Well, we, we talk quite a lot. Um, we've never talked about what's going on in her life, but I, we've always had a bit of a friendship. And she plucked up the courage to go into the post office when there was nobody else there and to ask her and just say... How are things? I heard that you were going through it a little bit with your mum. And to her surprise, this lady just opened up. Just, she was, began to weep in this post office. She said, yeah, my mum's going through it. She's in hospital. She has terminal cancer. And I just feel overwhelmed with it. I don't know where to go with it. This lady was divorced. She had no immediate family support. Uh, and she'd been making all these trips to the hospital on her own and feeling over-responsible for her mum's situation. And this Christian said to this uh, post office lady, she said, would you like me to come with you? I've, I haven't got a huge amount of experience, but I have some experience with this sort of thing. I could just come with you just to be there. And she said, you would do that, really? You'd come? She said, yeah. So she accompanied her to the hospital visits and, and built a bit of a relationship with this lady's mum. And she asked this lady's mum, how would you feel about me sharing this with my group? I've got a group of people that pray. And if you like... I, we'd love to pray for you through this situation. And she said, yeah, that'd be wonderful. So they began to pray for her. And having been given that permission, they also felt that they could put together a little book of encouragements. Everybody went away and, and wrote a few encouragements to this woman. And they put it into a book and she took it in with her. And this became like a source of inspiration for this woman in hospital. Eventually she died. 
and the woman from the post office shared at the funeral, which the whole village had turned out for, because they all knew this woman, that she had drawn tremendous strength from this group of Christians who prayed with her and walked, through, walked with her through the difficult times with her mother. The landlord of the pub was at that funeral. And after the funeral, he went to see this woman. He said, do you know what? They asked me if they could use the upper room in the pub six months ago. And I said no, because I thought they were probably a bunch of head cases. He said, but after hearing what you said, I probably, I probably should have said yes. Would you mind when you see your friend, would you please tell them that they can use the room upstairs? Well, they saw this as an open door from God, an open door of the kingdom. They were like, this is what we've been praying for, this is our open door. So they moved up into the area above the pub. Uh, it was a bit, bit shabby in there, so they got to work and they, they, they got cleaning, and they cleaned it up, and it became a much nicer space above the pub, and lo and behold, the landlord started getting more bookings. So he was delighted with that. <laughs> but they stayed there rent-free for a number of years. After two years, it hadn't grown much, but they had start, they started to get to know a lot more people. Then a woman moved into the next village who was a bombastic, outward, out outgoing, extrovert evangelist. And she'd only been there for about three weeks and everyone in the village next door seemed to know that this woman was a Christian. And she heard that there was a group that met in the next village, in the pub, every Wednesday night. So she came along straight away, said, oh, I heard you meet here. Uh, and she got stuck in straight away. Everyone was a bit shocked by her presence in the group, changed the dynamics quite a lot. But this one was amazing. The first week she came, she brought three people with her. And the group began to grow even more. And this gave the group a whole new lease of life and a whole new passion for sharing their faith because this woman's faith was infectious. And so more and more people came from the next village over to meet with them until they had doubled in number. There was now over 30 people meeting in this room above the pub and they were, everyone was getting really excited about what God was doing. They started serving the village fate of both villages. The vicar was loving it. <laughs> We've now got... They, after a little while, they decided, well, this is silly. Both villages need a presence. So they decided with the help of this very exuberant, bombastic woman, that they were going to plant another group in the village next door. She said, don't make me the leader, I'll wreck it, I've done it before. But there was another old couple in the village that she came from that were beautiful hosts. And they had a games room uh, as part of their business. They said, it was big enough, you can use my games room. They moved into the games room in this other village. We now have two groups that are growing. Each, both of them, with momentum and a sense of calling from God. After ten years, a further two groups had planted. There was now four groups in three villages, two in one village. Over 50 people had got saved. The people in the three villages had no, no doubt that the church was alive, that God was doing wonderful things. It was no longer unusual to talk about faith or prayer or Jesus. And everyone knew where to go to find out about God or to ask for help of any kind.
New people that moved into that area quickly understood that this was a special place and that the church was at the heart and soul of the community. The vicar, who was now nearing retirement, was so excited about what God was doing in these groups and in his churches, which had started with a whole new lease of life, that he wrote a full account of the change to his bishop. <coughs> the bishop, in turn, used the collection of villages as a case study for inspiring his clergy from the whole county, claiming that what was going on in this area was nothing short of a smouldering revival. All because one small group of believers chose to trust God, to live in radical vulnerability, to immerse themselves in their community, and committed themselves to successfully communicating the good news about Jesus Christ. Of course, that story hasn't actually happened yet. It's a, it's a fiction. <laughs> But it's the story that I believe we're about to write with our six new mission communities. I don't know what they're going to look like. They're going to look different depending on where they're planted and who people meet and what the opportunities might arise. But I believe that we're going to see stories along similar lines. Our mission communities carry tremendous potential for transformation in the long term. Not necessarily overnight, not necessarily in the first couple of years, but in the long term they carry tremendous potential if we are committed to this way of doing mission. Even if they hit difficulties and quiet patches along the way. But the best way that they can function is the Jesus way. To rely upon the goodwill of the community. To make sure that we take time to listen and to understand the people that God sets before us. To commit to them and then to serve them with the outpoured power of God and a clear communication of the gospel. So may you make this lifestyle and last lesson of Jesus the character of your life. May you take this lesson to heart. May you get to know Jesus better in the process. And may you see him do wonderful things amongst you next year. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi.